0: Previously on dying for a fight.
1: They were like, hey, let's let's brawl. All right, like, if it's mutual combat, you know, like let them fight. And then you just see the two cops,
2: big cops, and Sean was tiny, then five foot six, 120 pounds. They tackle him so hard. I'm thinking, what the fuck? You don't hurt somebody for that.
3: The power of just having a megaphone, you could take the crowd wherever you want.
2: Basically,
4: this is a shit show. There was no one at the head of the march. There was competing
2: megaphones. He really saw, for the first time, what it was like to be living poor and working poor.
0: Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains strong language, including a racial slur. It also contains descriptions of violence. Keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen.
2: back, do the three sisters method. What's the three sisters method?
0: My producer and I, Grant Irving, first met Laura Kellyer in April of 2021.
2: It's the old indigenous ways of doing, where you do the corn, the squash, and the beans.
0: We had picked her up from a house in southeast Portland, and we were driving to sit down for our first interview. We asked her about this massive garden behind her house.
2: Okay, so when you first go in my backyard, right to the right of it, there's blueberry bushes, and then... The left is sweet peas on one side of a trellis and sweet peas on the other side.
0: Laura likes being self-sufficient. And when she has extra food, she puts it on the sidewalk for her neighbors to take. We were making small talk in the car right over because this was a kind of nervous moment for both of us. We were driving to an apartment we rented specifically for these interviews because Laura wasn't sure she wanted to be seen talking to us in public. So we were feeling each other out. Um, None of the children are going to be  —
2: Yeah. No, I trust
0: you guys. If I was worried, I wouldn't
2: say
3: anything. I'd be like, no. — This is it, right Grant? — Yep, this
2: is it. — There can be
0: a lot of secrecy in the world of anti-fascists. They call it security culture. They often worry that saying the wrong thing to the wrong person could put one of them in danger. Someone could get arrested or attacked by a fascist, or they could inadvertently reveal a friend's identity But as we were getting out of the car and into the apartment, before we had even sat down, it became clear that Laura was ready to finally do away with the secrecy.
2: I'm intrigued by the idea of getting the police records and seeing the lack of police involvement.
0: She wanted us to know that she had her own reasons for talking with us.
2: Yeah, that's... that's- That's what I'm really intrigued about, to be honest. And now we're to the point where we won't, we're not even on speaking terms, so. You and the police? Yeah.
0: You could feel the room shift when Laura talked about Portland police. She's usually upbeat and has a motherly vibe, but ask her about police and... Fuck the police. I will not call the police. Laura believes police officers in Portland aren't solving Sean's homicide because he was so staunchly against the police. And she started to feel that way on the night he was killed. It started at the hospital.
2: When I actually first walked in there, though, it was interesting because I saw the police cars there, and I didn't know it at the time that his friends were in the police cars. They wouldn't let him in.
0: According to Laura Kellyer, Portland police officers arrived at the hospital shortly after Sean's friends had taken his body to the emergency room. But instead of asking them what happened or who had done this, police officers put handcuffs on his friends. Sean's friends were in the back of the police vehicles. They didn't know if Sean was alive or dead. And they were headed for interrogation.
2: They were detained for I don't even know how long there. And then they were taken to jail.
0: According to Laura, the police persisted for days. Portland police detective Scott Broughton was one of the two detectives assigned to solve Sean's homicide. We reached out multiple times to the detectives handling Sean's case to get their side of the story, but they did not return requests for comment. So this is strictly Laura's version of events. Laura says Detective Broughton kept calling her in the days after Sean's death. He didn't seem to have leads on the killers, but then he was eager to get information on Sean's friends.  —
2: — Detective Broughton, who is just so rude, he was still being very insistent about who his associates were, who he was hanging out with. — Did
0: he call you or did he
2: show Called. Um, well, they had asked me to come down there, and I refused.
0: — Portland Police Bureau officials would also not comment on specifics of this case, but said they take complaints about officer interactions seriously. The combative relationship Laura Keller has with the Portland police is complicated. To this day, she wants some kind of justice for her son. She wants an accounting of why he was killed and who did it. Laura was once a person who yelled at her son for saying all cops are bastards, but she isn't that person anymore.
2: I am 100% ACAP now. Fuck the police, fuck the system. They don't care about
0: justice. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, This is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. When Laura left the hospital the night Sean was killed, she felt like the police officers working the case had no sympathy for her, and especially none for Sean. She claims one of the officers even said at one point that she could be brought in for questioning if she didn't cooperate. She felt devastated, But something important happened that night. The anti-fascists who had been fighting with police, who were friends with her son, started supporting her. These were people Laura didn't know personally. She had been to protests before, but now anti-fascists were taking her in as one of their own. One of his friends drove me home.
2: Very supportive, they were so kind. So many people were so kind.
0: Laura leaned on her son's friends to get her through this tragic moment in her life.
2: To go from the hostility of the police to the kindness of the so-called, you know, extremists, you know, that everybody likes to say are bad.
0: The people who came to Laura that night were people like Sean, anti-fascists, anti-racist skinheads, and other people who don't trust the police. They had my back.
2: They they are the ones who got me through this. Just embraced and made me feel safe, made my family feel safe. And I'm very thankful.
0: The small and close and sometimes secretive community that Sean was a part of was now there for Laura. Meanwhile, the police and prosecutors didn't have much to say to her while they worked the case. The anti fascists came and visited her at her home. They asked her if she was doing okay. They promised her safety and protection. People in this community were also doing research on what might have happened outside Siderite the night Sean was killed. And Portland police officers kept calling Laura
2: Detective Broughton when he called me. I don't know if it was the next day or or a few days after that. He just kept going, I need to know where you got this information. How did you find out? I need to know who he was hanging out with. And I just said, you're a fucking asshole. Go fuck
0: yourself. Police had already interrogated the two people with Sean the night he was killed. So Laura did not understand why they were asking for names of more people who Sean knew. She felt like she was being interrogated herself. Did he say why he wanted
2: No, but I assumed it was because they want to try to make any leaps or whatever they can because they have such a hard-on to arrest leftists.
0: In this moment, just a few days after Sean died, it's almost like there are two Lauras. There is a Laura who is furious with police and suspects them of trying to use Sean's death to go after anti-fascists and other leftists. Then there's a Laura who is grieving for her son and desperate for justice and wants the police to solve the case. Because even as she's telling detectives to fuck off, Laura's also kind of helping them. Remember, just three days after Sean was killed, she gave that speech where she asked people in the community not to spread rumors.
2: you Sean Kellyer's Callier, mother, I am requesting that no one give statements to the media or make public statements regarding my son's death.
0: It was this a request that benefited Portland police in the sense that it kept rumors at bay and allowed them to conduct their investigation. But as the days turned into weeks and then into months, with no arrest, Laura began to wonder if Sean's death would ever be solved, if she'd ever get answers. From what she saw, the case looked simple. The murder weapon, the SUV that ran over Sean, was left behind at the scene. Its license plate and VIN number was sitting there. I mean,
2: they literally have the weapon. They have video footage of who was driving the vehicle.
0: She thought, It's got to be easy to find the killer. Maybe there was DNA evidence in the car or a fingerprint. And one deputy district attorney who was working on the prosecution at the time said, be patient. They outlined the steps in the case and assured Laura that work was happening behind the scenes. The
2: DA guy just was acting like, very much like he's on it and he's going to get this guy and they're going to go away for homicide and it's, you know,
0: er. her. Were you surprised by that?
2: Yeah, I, I was. I, I truly was. I, I took the bait on that as far as believing, okay, yeah, I am going to get justice.
0: Laura went back and forth, having hope and tempering that hope. And attorneys representing her, people with experience in prosecutions, say it's understandable how she became frustrated over time. Did you talk to any of the any of the detectives and say, like, I know you didn't like my son? like? Did- oh, absolutely. What did... Do you remember specific? No, we're professional.
2: We're, we, we know how to do our jobs. That has nothing to do with it.
0: And all the while, the police and the district attorney's office were telling Laura to be patient. The anti-fascists were researching. They were doing the kind of work Sean talked about when he was still alive. Here in America, you know, you have to know who the Nazis are. And part yeah. of that is researching. And so,
3: you know, when people think anti-fascists, they're thinking, oh, here's the big scary guys in the all black when actually it's me in my underwear at three in the morning going through the white pages,
0: court records, voting records, and trying to find addresses and different other stuff. For a case like Sean's, where a person can search the DMV records of the SUV at the scene and start making connections, it's not surprising that Laura says she soon had names of people who may have been involved in Sean's killing.
2: So, was the one that was behind the will and that murdered Sean.
0: She had several names, in fact. We are not using those names, because at this time, those people have not been charged with any crime.
2: The vehicle actually belonged to elderly uncle. Um, anyway, was driving, and ran Sean over, and then things went down, and they got out of the car and ran because they crashed into the Democratic building.
0: Laura says she couldn't tell me on tape how she got these names because it could put people at risk. How certain do you feel that it is?
2: I am 100% certain.
0: You said you verified the info. Yes. It, 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 you, like, meaning like you just looked, looked it over and were convinced or like there, you took extra steps beyond what was presented? I took extra steps. Anything you could share with us? No. Them? I asked Laura if the research she was shown made her believe this killing was political. I asked her if it was someone from Patriot Prayer or the Proud Boys or some other group that might have been out to get Sean after that brawl at Cider Riot just a few months earlier. She said no, not at all.
2: And I had heard early on that it was not a politically motivated attack.
0: Someone you trusted. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Made you feel assured that it... Yeah. Like I said... At this time, we're not naming these people. But what I can say is, one of the people Laura is accusing, the person she says was driving the vehicle, has a past conviction for driving while intoxicated and fleeing a police officer. He's also pled guilty to strangling someone. He entered a diversion program. When he finished that program, the judge in his case dismissed the charge with prejudice. I have called each of the men Laura accuses several times, trying to get their side of the story. But they wouldn't return my calls text messages or voicemails. I even left letters at their doors saying I wanted to talk. So we just left it in one of the mailboxes. At one time, these men lived just minutes from Laura's house. And she says knowing who they were at first was overwhelming. She reached out on Facebook, messaging them, trying to find answers. They didn't reply. She had all this information now, but didn't change a thing for her.
2: I honestly contemplated murder suicide I wanted to, because I have his address. I wanted to go to his house, kill him, and then kill myself. And then I knew that Sean would not want that. And there's nobody else to take care of my mom and my my other kids, so I had to do something.
0: That something she decided to do was eventually putting the names out on social media and talking to journalists like me. From Laura's perspective, Sean's death may have just been a random encounter, a drunken bar fight that went wrong, not political at all, But what happened afterward with the police, to her, is all about politics.
2: The police really want to get people on the the left, the anarchists. They so badly want to get them on serious charges.
0: Like, you you thought, all right, Portland police is hoping one of these anarchists Yeah. Show this guy's house.
2: Yeah. I believe strongly that they are refusing to solve this case because they really want somebody on the left to get on the
0: hook for it. Laura thinks police officers in Portland are so against the leftist community of anti-fascists and anarchists that they are waiting for a retaliation against the accused. If that happened, according to Laura, police could bring a serious charge against an anti-fascist. It's a wild theory, the stuff of bad movies and paranoid Reddit threads. But if you really understand Portland's history, it's not entirely unbelievable. More after this break.
1: Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
0: Remember when I told you that Oregon was started as a state to completely exclude black people? Well, that idea never really went away. In the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan boasted tens of thousands of members in Oregon, there were elected leaders and sheriffs who were in the Klan. And like most American cities, white leaders in Portland used redlining and interstate highway developments to break apart neighborhoods where Black people and other people of color lived. That racist idea to exclude Black people has taken on a lot of different names over the years. The 10% Solution, the Northwest Imperative, the American Readout, And sometimes it's spearheaded by explicitly racist groups. Other times though, white nationalists dress it up in suits and ties and say they want to protect so-called Western values. But the idea is the same, that a bunch of like-minded white people could move to the Pacific Northwest, kick out or kill anyone who didn't look like them and set up an ethnostate, a whites only paradise. And that racist dream in the 1980s and 90s was very much alive in Portland.
3: And um, it's really, it's really racial oriented. You know, we're white racists and we believe in hard work. We believe in the family and we believe in fighting for our race and we'll defend it even to the death.
0: In the late eighties, Portland was home to so many competing skinhead groups. It was sometimes known as Skinhead City. Portland was a working class town and these groups would recruit disaffected kids at racist punk shows. But there was also a thriving scene of anti-racist punks in America. And these groups were fighting out their differences in the street. Newspaper reports at this time talk about racist skinheads spraying graffiti on an apartment building that belonged to an Ethiopian immigrant, telling them to leave. Another about a black man being held up at gunpoint and robbed by a racist skinhead who complained he was, quote, taking all the jobs. Another about a black man jumped and robbed by a racist skinhead just for standing on the street corner. And all that happened over the course of just two days in 1988. Violence and harassment were happening almost daily across the city. It was a bloody time in Portland's history. That's where this guy comes in
1: i'm mike crenshaw i'm a hip-hop artist educator and activist
0: mike crenshaw was a member of the minneapolis baldies a crew of multicultural anti-racist skinheads who shaved their heads and were a kind of precursor for the skinhead group that sean would join before he died crenshaw moved to portland in the early
1: 90s with his family you know aside from my family ties there was a community of skinheads against racial prejudice that I knew I could kick it with.
0: Oregon had a lot of the same problems Crenshaw had seen in Minneapolis with the Baldies. Portland was besieged by violence after neo-Nazis carried out a brazen attack in 1988 that shook the city.
2: Three black men, all from Ethiopia, were sitting in this car talking. When one left to head for his apartment, another car pulled up. Three
3: young white men jumped out and began beating him dead is 27-year-old Mooligata
0: Sarao. White supremacists used a baseball bat to hit Mooligata Saraw in the head multiple times. A racist terror campaign had launched into overdrive. The men who killed Saraw were associated with a gang known as East Side White Pride. And they had the support of Tom Metzger, a grand dragon in the Knights of the KKK in California. Crenshaw says by the time he showed up in Portland, the racist skinhead problem had been going on for years. The way anti-racist skinheads saw it, people were getting killed, and the police weren't doing anything to stop it. So Crenshaw says the natural response to that is that people become their own form of protection. They call each other instead of calling 911. They started gathering up weapons and began patrolling their own neighborhoods, looking for neo-Nazis.
1: It's like, I might get into it today. We might get into it today. I might go to jail, I might get killed, I might hurt somebody, somebody might go to the hospital. It, these are all the the kind of factual like, events that can happen. He says the anti-racist skinheads didn't have many other choices. And once you get used to a lifestyle where you entertain violent confrontation as part of day-to-day life, then you almost expect it to happen. Crenshaw
0: describes this time like it was an all-out street war. You could get jumped for having the wrong color laces on your boots. By putting their bodies on the line, Crenshaw says he and other anti-racist skinheads showed people they could actually do something to directly confront racists. And here's the thing. It kind of worked. The white power groups in Portland eventually got tired of these fights, and their numbers shrank in the city.
1: We did beat a few Nazis into not being Nazis. Even with our words, we convinced people that Mm -hmm. the way that they were doing things wasn't the right way to do it. And they decided to stop. The anti-racists
0: in Portland in the 1980s and 90s were doing what police couldn't. They were driving Nazis out of the city. And that's perhaps because police didn't see these fights as racists trying to take over a city as steps in the process to create the long-dreamed white utopia in the Pacific Northwest. They just saw it as a gang problem. One 1990 report in the Oregonian newspaper documents a fight where 20 racist skinheads got into a brawl with 30 African Americans in downtown Portland. Three people were taken to the hospital, and yet police didn't step in. Nobody was arrested. Portland police officer Lauren Christensen was then a prominent member of the city's gang unit. He frequently described the fights between racist and anti-racist skinheads as beasts between two different gangs. He even wrote a book on these fights called Skinhead Street Gangs. In that book, Christensen writes, quote, it has been Portland's experience that the anti-racist skinheads are just as violent as the racists. He goes on to say that the Sharps, the skinheads against racial prejudice, did what they did because they wanted attention and the anti-racists were, quote, just as much of a threat as the racist skins. And remember Tom Metzger, the Grand Dragon in the Knights of the KKK, who supported the racists who killed Mulligy Officer Christensen told the Oregonian that Portland police provided security for Metzger three times through the city prior to standing trial because of anti-racist animosity towards him. So maybe it's not a surprise that Crenshaw feels like police protect racists but that he thinks it's suspicious that police haven't solved Sean's homicide. He sounds a lot like Laura when he talks about Sean's killing.
1: — What I would assume is that them making a decision to not actively resolve what happened with Sean's uh, murder is somehow tied to them waiting to see what happens in the wake of Sean's murder. Crenshaw
0: says that Laura's theory about police slow-walking Sean's case isn't crazy
1: to him. I haven't seen that in writing from them, but one can just basically make some assumptions based on what we observe. Because the way Crenshaw
0: sees it, this is all a cycle. Fascism is born with each generation. Crenshaw and the anti-racist skinheads of the 80s and 90s won their street fights, beating
1: back fascism. But that doesn't mean they won the war. What the problem is, is that we don't know. When you beat the Nazi and they understand, like, okay, it's not safe for me to be a Nazi right here, more often than not, what they do is they go be a Nazi somewhere else. But what the unanswered question is, do they come back stronger at a different point in time? And when they do come back with more friends, are you going to survive that altercation? Mm
0: -hmm. After the racists who killed Molageta Sera went to jail, Tom Metzger told his followers in the white power movement to go underground. Here's Metzger on a racist radio show in 2013. I've told people, get deceptive, get in there, infiltrate, pretend you're the other side. But
4: pretend you don't know the what they are.
0: You don't know what they're doing. Well, that's right, it's but nobody surprising. else does either. That's Nobody else does either.
1: <laughs> no, that's the way it has to get to, you know, and that's what you call real warfare. It's the war in the shadows is what I call it.
0: Metzger wanted racist skinheads to start growing out their hair, ditch their tattoos, and blend into mainstream society. He said racists should act as lone wolves when they carry out violent attacks. By 2014, Sean Kellyer was a few years out from his Occupy Portland days. He was 18 years old, a blue-collar worker who hauled junk for a living and had dropped out of high school. And he had aligned with the next generation of anti-racist skinheads who were hunting for lone wolves in their midst. They were looking for people who blended into mainstream society and could use positions of power to further white supremacist goals.
3: All right, so we're here today against Mark Kruger.
0: Video from July of 2014 shows Sean standing in downtown Portland, dressed in all black. Anyone
3: who's not aware of Mark Kruger? want to know why we're here against him. Can you tell us, please? Oh, I will tell you.
0: Sean is talking to a small crowd of protesters about a Portland police captain named Mark Kruger.
3: Mark Kruger, at a public park on his off time, decided he would put up a memorial for four, five SS soldiers. The SS. They were willful Nazis. Mark Kruger put up a plaque memorial for them, honoring their service.
0: And news reports back up what Sean is saying. Mark Kruger was a Portland police officer who admitted he wore Nazi uniforms. And in 1999, Kruger hung a memorial plaque to five German soldiers in a Portland city park.
3: Now, he claims he's not a Nazi. Is that true? No, fuck no, fuck no. He is still a literal Nazi.
0: Kruger denied he was a Nazi. And despite the accusations and the evidence brought to Portland police, he remained a police officer. And not just a rank-and-file police officer, he was a captain in the Portland police. In fact, he continued to serve with the department until he retired in 2020. The protest Sean was leading was in 2014, years before there would be a nationwide conversation About ties between far-right extremism and police. Years before police officers, and ex-military, would be in a crowd of hundreds who stormed the US Capitol, trying to shut down democracy. Here was Sean marching through a Portland Mall carrying a sign that said, Mark Kruger, in case you forgot what cops are.
1: A Nazi!
3: A Nazi!
0: This protest organized by Sean was small. But it was a blinking light, a warning sign about all the terrible things of the past that never really went away. Sean was trying to bring people over to his cause by tying the past to the present. Laura says that got him a lot of attention from Portland police officers.
2: He'd be at a protest and and they'd be like, hey, Sean. Yeah. And they thought it was hilarious to do that.
0: And video does exist where Sean would be talking to police officers and it seems they know him by that name. like
1: a good way to start? It is reasonable, considering the history and stuff that I've been
0: through. Sean and some of his friends are casually talking to officers dressed in reflective yellow jackets. Yes. And your name's Sean?
1: I've got many names. You can call me that What was the other one you like to call? A city called? <laughs> A
3: city mm-hmm. So which one's your real name? Ah, uh, you guys have to guess that one. I didn't have to
0: guess. Uh, Since Sean's death, Laura Callier has become more and more convinced that what Sean was doing at protests like this one was right.
2: So one of the things when Sean died, I made the mistake of going online and looking at things. Do you know how many Leo or law enforcement sites that I went through and they were celebrating my son's death? Fuck those Nazi fucking police scum, and I hope they die, and I hope they all quit.
0: It's interesting that Sean has radicalized people after he died, because for years before that, Pulling people over to his way of thinking had been what he lived for. More after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girl? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Throughout the Trump era, Sean Kellyer would reach out to all kinds of people and guide them into his world, putting a hand out to those who might take it. In January of 2017, a group of white men went to a mass in Spanish at a Catholic church near Sean's neighborhood, and the white men started shouting at people as they tried to go in.
3: Shut your mouth! This ain't your business! Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge every single one of you, and you're in there
0: Xenophobia and anti-immigrant attitudes were growing in the country as the Trump administration introduced harsh and often cruel policies around immigrants. It was hatred directed at Latinos, who Micah Fletcher grew up around. He says he felt compelled to do something. He just didn't know what. By this time, Micah and Sean had lost contact with each other. They grew apart after Sean dropped out of high school. So Micah turned to someone he knew could help him deal with racists in Portland.
3: I asked a very dear friend of mine who I had gotten involved in a competition for, uh, Mike Crenshaw.
0: You heard that right. Micah turned to Mike Crenshaw, the anti-racist skinhead who helped confront neo-Nazis in Minneapolis and Portland decades ago.
3: And I'm just like, man, I'm worrying, man. And he's like, what are, you, what are you stressed out about? I'm like, I'm worrying, man. All this shit's happening in the country. I'm pretty sure my best friend's going to get deported. It seems like people are losing their damned minds.
1: I remember Micah asking me, you know, you know hey, what— I want to be involved. He's like, okay, what do you want to do about it? I'm like, I don't know, but
3: something. He he goes digging around, does something, comes back to me. He goes, hey.
1: We're dealing with a historical continuum. And at different points in history, there are flashpoints, right?
3: So there's a talk that's going to be given over at this spot in North Portland.
0: This talk is about the history of white supremacy in Oregon.
3: You want to learn more about the history of this kind of stuff? You should go there. I'm like, oh, okay, cool.
0: So Micah does go.
3: And these two guys uh, come out to speak. And I'm looking, I'm like...
0: On the poster for the event, Micah sees the name of one of the speakers, Armenia Lewis.
3: And lo and behold, here comes Sean's gangly ass walking into the arena. And I'm like, holy fucking shit. Is th- that has to be. There's no way.
0: Micah sits and listens to this history lesson about white supremacy in Oregon. And after it's over, Arminio is shaking hands and chatting with people in the crowd.
3: And I walk up to him, and I'm like, Hey, Sean, and I could physically feel the vibrations of how quickly his neck just snapped back, like, what? And he goes, Micah? And I'm like, what's up, dude? And he's like, don't call me that, man.
0: Sean went by Arminio, or Yaka, street names to protect his identity from police in the far right. And now his cover was blown. But suddenly, he had a chance to bring in one of his oldest friends into the anti-fascist scene.
3: That was basically my introduction into any of this.
0: Sean was building connections with other people, too, at this time, even mainstream liberals. And that's because liberals at protests were also starting to question how heavy-handed police were at their demonstrations. Gregory and Kat McKelvey remember one time when Sean reached out after they faced aggressive policing. It happened at a march led by high school students that they joined in November of 2016.
4: We were asked by a group of high school students to essentially mentor them in a march.
0: Kat McKelvey says students wanted to speak out and that Gregory and her wanted to help. But, she says, Portland police tried to shut down the demonstration.
4: The police perspective was that we were marching a bunch of high school kids downtown illegally and like using them as cover.
0: There were around 50 to 100 high schoolers chanting and marching at this peaceful protest. Portland police tweeted that parents should tell their kids to go back to school. Still, Portland police lined the march with officers and started giving directions on where it should go. After just over an hour of this, police decided to intervene.
4: And the police approached Greg, and I knew they were going to arrest him. And so I broke from the crowd and I ran up to Greg and I put my arms around him.
3: Yes.
0: Kat says this is when police started being aggressive with her.
3: Hey, hey, hey. Your to you to arrest. My, my, my. Stay away from the police
1: officers.
0: My, my. —Two police officers grabbed Kat, one by her back near her neck and the other pulling her on her arm trying to get her off Gregory.
4: One of them started um, putting me in handcuffs and they held me in that position, pushing me down. One was leaning on top of me and one was in front of me and he was hitting my face and telling me to look away from him. And I I couldn't move.
0: Kat didn't understand what they had done to be arrested other than lead a march of teenagers.
4: And I kept saying, I can't move. I can't, I can't do anything, you're hurting me.
0: Videos of the arrest show officers putting Kat on the ground.
4: They had faced Greg towards me to get a reaction out of him. And he was just talking me through it. He was like, just do what they say. Just stay calm.
0: Kat would sue the city of Portland over this arrest. And the city paid out a private settlement in the spring of 2021. Gregory says Portland police admitted no wrongdoing in the settlement. After spending a few hours being processed at jail, Kat McKelvey went to the hospital for pain she felt in her neck and wrist.
4: And then Sean showed up.
1: That's the thing I remember with him is, uh, who does that, right? Like He didn't have to come to the hospital. We didn't gain anything from him coming to the hospital. He came to the hospital because he, uh, cared. In these early years of protests,
0: People were already starting to ask why police were using force more often against protests on the left, and whether police had a bias. Those questions became even more frequent when groups like Patriot Prayer started clashing with anti-fascists. Police denied they were picking sides. Here's how former Portland Police Chief Daniel Outlaw responded to questions like those after one demonstration.
2: A lot of people have been asking if we were favoring one side versus another. We wouldn't do that by any means. It just so happened that our focus happened to be on behavior. We focused on those that were throwing the projectiles.
3: Why was Patriot Prayer allowed to cross Nato Parkway against police orders and didn't face any crowd control measures when they violated that direct prayer?
2: That's a good question. I, I don't have the answer to that. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll look into that. But I will reinforce and reiterate again, time and time again, there's no no group that gets any favoritism by
0: us. Protesters in Portland often point to one particular protest as an example where police seem to favor groups like Patriot Prayer over anti-fascists. It was April of 2017. Joey Gibson and Patriot Prayer were leading what they called a free speech march in Portland.
1: There was going to be a chance to kind of wake up Portland in terms of like, it's okay to be for freedom, to push for freedom. To,
0: the know, march Gibson organized also gave a platform up. to the men who had harassed the parishioners at the Catholic Church in Sean's neighborhood. So Gibson is marching along the sidewalk on a busy Portland street. He holds a large pole waving a Don't Tread on Me Gadsden flag and a Trump flag. Anti fascists are there as well. They're making noise with party favors to drown out Gibson on the megaphone. Portland police are following the march, dressed in full riot gear. This is the Portland
3: police Bureau. the We respect your first amendment right to speech and assembly. You know, working to facilitate of same environment.
0: It is a slow, lumbering march. People stop at crosswalks and they keep going. In one video, you can see Sean talking to one of the Patriot Prayer guys. At one point, the police form a circle around Gibson's group. They stand facing outward towards the anti-fascists with their backs to Gibson, trying to keep the group separate. Apart from the occasional insult, it's mostly calm. Until one man, who no one seems to know all that well, starts yelling at people.
3: Take your mask off and debate! That's why I'm here! This is my soapbox! Portland,
0: Oregon, the Northwest! This man is not in Patriot Prayer. But Gibson's message about free speech drew him out. He says he was pissed off about Antifa. He's seething about people wearing bandanas to hide their faces.
3: We got Anyone for the Supreme f- Court rulings for freedom that, of speech, that, speech since the 50s and 60s in the
0: North. The man has wrapped a dog chain around his neck. He's got a wide chest and a scar below his right eye. He wears a shirt that references the Zodiac Killer. An old type of American flag hangs off his shoulders like a cape.
3: We brought all this Semitic monotheist child molesters over here. I'm
0: As this guy is ranting, he raises his arm in a Sigh Heil, a Nazi salute. He says he's there to provoke anyone and everyone with his free speech.
3: over here, I'm a viking. We brought him over here. Come on, we got prior land claims. Constitution, that ain't Us Danish and Norwegians, we got prior land claims with the radio.
0: At one point, this man is following Gibson and runs directly into a crowd of counter-protesters. Sean and Micah are in this group together.
3: Jesus is going to yeah, speak go. the word of God and judge all yeah, Sean
0: yeah, Kellier and Micah Fletcher had come out to confront people they thought were pushing fascist and racist ideas. And Sean's approach was very much a callback to the anti-racist skinheads of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, you're a little you're punk. A
3: You won't even throw a punch. You're, you're a little a white, punk. Of course he, I want.
0: He's Sean me. is wearing his work clothes, and he's inches from this guy's face, challenging him to a fight. In response, the man with the dog chain around his neck starts saying racist and offensive slurs. You're a white What's nigger!
3: You're a white nigger? You're a white up? nigger! You're a white up? nigger! What's
0: Sean up? stares at that racist man and paces around in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant, looking like he's going to throw a punch at any minute. And someone from Gibson's group starts pulling this guy back. Don't
3: use the N-word. That's not appropriate. Uh. Racist piece of
0: shit! Micah's standing nearby, too, but he's not trying to fight anyone. He's taking a very different approach to this whole situation, He's wearing a jester's cap and a red clown nose, dark sunglasses. He's juggling a few balls in the air, like he's trying to defuse the situation by showing the absurdity of the moment. Why is it Come
3: always going to be a battle with you? me out, you up. Punk. Everybody wants I to fight and Y'all are here to fight.
1: I want to see some juggling. I, please. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not, I'm here. You know, that's actually pretty good. I can only do a one handed
0: It's not clear who was the most effective at driving the racist man out of the rally. But what is clear is that it worked. Here was somebody using racist language and gestures, and the anti-fascists confronted him. Sean and Micah confronted him. And the conservative group did kick the man out, eventually.
3: No, wait, guys, you're not with us, you're looking for hey, a to to No, 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 you're giving a Nazi sign and you're saying the N-word. Dude, you're giving a Nazi sign and,
0: and you're saying
3: the N-word. So please go away. I didn't ask you
0: again, The police later helped this man away, and gave protection to various groups, including Patriot Prayer. Officers arrested three people with the left-wing crowd. Still, maybe Sean and Micah saw this day as a win. After all, they were doing something about the problems they saw bubbling up again in Portland. Problems that were just waiting for the right time to resurface. And from their perspective, the police weren't going to stop it. But one thing that all these years of covering protests have taught me is that even with every victory, there comes a consequence. There's always a cost. And even when people win, they lose. And for Michael Fletcher, Sean's friend, that cost was coming. A month later, he shared a train with the man who'd been throwing Nazi salutes and yelling slurs at Sean. This time, the racist man had a knife. That's next time on The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at deligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Equitola. We had production assistance from Bashak Arten and Mia Warren. Special thanks to Mike Crenshaw. If you want to learn more about the skinhead battles in Portland during the 80s and 90s, you can check out the It Did Happen Here podcast, which Mike co-hosts. Special thanks to Daniel V. for additional audio used in this episode. Oregon Public Broadcasting storytelling and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you.